Welcome to the Everyday Health Podcast. Join Dr. Carlos as he takes a broad look at the medical world. This podcast focuses on the health topics that affect everyone. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everybody. Well, today we have a great guest, Dr. Bill Schindler. Well, who is he? He's an internationally known archaeologist, primitive technologist, and chef. He founded and directs the Eastern Shore Food Lab with a mission to preserve and revive ancestral dietary approaches to create a nourishing, ethical, and sustainable food system. Also an adjunct associate professor of archaeology at University College Dublin. His work currently the focus of Wired Magazine's YouTube series, Basic Instincts and Food Science. He co-starred in the National Geographic Channel series, A Great Human Race, which aired in 2016 in over 170 countries. He's appeared everywhere, folks, CNN, NPR, but we don't have time to talk about all of it, but he's here today with us. That's all that matters. His book, which I highly recommend, is called Eat Like a Human, Nourishing Foods and Ancient Ways of Cooking to Revolutionize Your Health. By the way, you can find more about him at eatlikehuman.com and modernstoneagekitchen.com. We'll find out more about those websites in a minute. So before we get started, make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know we like it. Let's not waste any more time. We'll talk to Dr. Bill Schindler. Welcome, sir. Hey, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for being here. This is awesome. Um, we've done a kind of almost like a series, I guess, with some of your uh, colleagues as well. Dr. Rangan, we talked to just a few weeks ago, and Dr. Saladino, and I found this, and I thought this is really interesting to continue on to the conversation of the ancient ways of cooking. But the first, first, first things first, what got you into this direction? God, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I have always been interested in food and diet and health. And in fact, most of my life, I've had an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food. Um, I was a very overweight kid. Um, and then you know, to make an incredibly long story short, but if anything's important, we can dive back in or uh, anything you want to dive into. Uh, I was, you know, food when I was a kid was something that I didn't look at and said, you know, I thought this is, this nourishes me. No, I looked at it and said, this is something that makes me fat. This is something that makes other kids make fun of me. Right. And I know I have to eat it, but I don't want it as a part of my life. And then in college, you know, I ended up becoming, believe it or not, a division one athlete, despite this unhealthy relationship with food. Um, and I wrestled, I wrestled for Ohio state and I traded one incredibly unhealthy relationship for another, um, food in college was something that I was no longer scared of, but it was something, or it was, it was something that you know forced me to not make weight, right? It was something that I had to had to, had to have out of my life as much as possible. Um, this entire time, you know, I was battling all sorts of of these modern Western diseases that we all know today are, are part of food uh, food issues. But irritable bowel syndrome is a great example. Um, and then when I stopped competing and I stopped working out so incredibly hard, all that weight just poured back on. And the only thing that was changing throughout my life was how hard I was exercising, but my diet, I was swapping one fad diet for another, never found the relief or the satisfaction I was looking for. And I knew I had to make some sort of a change. So there was this, this one thread my entire life trying to figure out what I should be eating in order to look and feel a certain way. And at the same time, my father and had me outside my entire life hunting and fishing and trapping and camping and just, you know, just this love for the outdoors, love for the past. We, uh, we used to read biographies about mountain men and, um, you know, fur trappers from the 1800s and Native Americans. And, you know, we were always looking for arrowheads. And, and I dove deep into archaeology from that technological perspective. I know you mentioned earlier, I'm a primitive technologist, and that brought me to archaeology. This, this um, I've been trained by some of the best primitive technologists around the world in stone tools, uh, how to replicate uh, ancient, ancient pottery, how to do things with na native fibers, ancient fire making, those sorts of things. And I came at archaeology from that perspective because I realized to answer the questions I wanted to know about what I was really passionate about, these, these technologies, the archaeological record was where I should be looking. And it turns out that once I dove into the archaeological record for, for that insight, that that skill set knowing how to replicate stone tools, knowing how to replicate ancient pottery actually helped inform my interpretation of the archaeological record. So there was that thread at the same time. And what I realized and what really laid the foundation for all the work that I'm doing professionally and in my personal life 
is about 20 years ago, I realized that almost every single prehistoric technology ever created, and I mean for three and a half million years worth of time, all the Albert Einsteins, all the smartest of our ancestors who are creating all the technological innovations for all of that time, all of them were focused on food. Almost every single prehistoric mm. technology has something to do with food, making food, getting food, processing food, storing food, redistributing food, sharing food, whatever. And when I really saw that technological link and that archaeological link and the understanding that the diets had changed over time, built us as a species, I really you know, started to come together for me to understand, oh my gosh, you know, this, what I've been doing my entire life, I thought there were these separate threads, you know, I'm banging on rocks over here and staring at a, at a mirror, almost in tears over here, they're actually linked. And uh, when, I, when I started to address my own food and diet and health from that ancestral lens, and then also my family's incredible transformations occurred, I'm 49 years old now, I've never been in better health. And that includes the time I was a division one athlete. That's phenomenal. Yeah, you have an incredible background, too. I can definitely see it. It's funny, as we talked about primitive, primitive technologists, I kept thinking, for some reason, my favorite movie is Jurassic Park. So I'm just looking at him brushing off the stuff off the, <laughs> the bones and the little camera that he had that he showed the kids. Um, that's interesting. I'm 50, and I started similar diets. I think I started not really necessarily carnivore all the way, but definitely a heavy uh, focus on the meat. And I feel exactly the same way as you do in a sense. I, I, it's completely different. And it went against everything that I've learned <laughs> over the years. Because I was a personal trainer about 15, 20 years ago for about a decade. And it was, just goes against the grain. A lot of the stuff that I heard, I thought for sure I was going to have stomach issues, which I was having before I started that diet. And that's gone. Um, it's remarkable. It really is remarkable. You know, I've had four or five medical things in my life that have caused mm. much discomfort or distress or stress in general, all, all, all these things. And every single one of them, it turns out, is a result of oxalates. Every one of them. Mm. That was a and big one too. What is that? Tell us a little bit about that. About oxalates. Yeah. So, and, and I just, I thought about it because you're talking about going against the grain, going against, you know, <laughs> this mantra of what we should be eating today. So oxalates for, for archaeologists, it's great. Arche uh, you know, plants produce, silica bodies these little microscopic things they, they, they we call them phytoliths because they're they're tiny little rocks mm. essentially but they're made out of silica which is the same kind of thing as sand right um or glass and under a microscope they look like little shards of glass the cool thing for an archaeologist is that different plants uh produce phytoliths that look different from one another so and they and they persist in the archaeological record they don't you know degrade like the organic parts of it do so if we can if we get them and we look at them and look at them in our microscope I mean, think about how powerful it is look at a site that's seven thousand years old and be able to say hey they were eating this plant and sometimes the actual um morphological distinction the shape of it is not only down to the plant but also the plant part does it come from a leaf or come from, you know, whatever. So for archaeologists, it's cool. For humans, it's really, really bad because these, uh, again, under a microscope, they look like little shards of glass. When we consume them, um, our body realizes how dangerous they are and grabs them and sequesters them and puts them in different places. Um, and usually in your extremities, in your feet, your toes, your fingers, um, in your joints, um, in your corneas ends up being a, a common place. If, if you've ever experienced some kind of trauma or damage, uh, especially to soft tissue, it, it, they'll accumulate in those areas and they oh, wow. build up over time. And, you know, if you were to eat, and it, it takes months, years, sometimes decades to really start to see the problems from it, uh, depending on what your diet load is like and, a, and other overall health. So it's a huge issue because if you ate something today, and tonight it made you sick, you could make that psychological link like, oh, it was that, right? And, and then you avoid it. But here we're talking about days, months, weeks, years, decades of eating the same food over and over again, not realizing that by the time you're 35, 40 years old and you're having trouble getting up the steps and you're like, oh my gosh, this is just old age. No, it was actually the spinach you've been eating your whole life. Then um, it, it's hard to make that distinction. So um, they build up over time. They cause massive inflammation. They cause massive pain. They cause discomfort. Uh, they can cause actually a whole host of other issues. And the, um, they, the problem is they, they occur in very common plants and, and plants that we've labeled as superfoods. One of the biggest offenders is spinach. Spinach, Swiss chard, and rhubarb are incredibly high 
Um, sesame seeds are really high. So if you're eating hummus with tahini in it, and think about it, um, almonds, incredibly high, almond milk, incredibly high. In fact, for the first time ever, there was a study done a few years ago, the uh, children under the age of 10 years old are presenting with kidney stones, which is a result of oxalates. And it's happening in families, vegan families that are feeding their kids, you know, little kids, massive quantities of almond milk, and they're drinking the same amount of almond milk as they would be drinking, you know, cows or goat's milk, and they're presenting with kidney stones. It's, it's a huge issue. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that even though humans have domesticated ourselves, we should look to our other wild, other wild animals in the world as, um, as role models. Like wild animals live incredible lives and then keel over dead. And that's how I want to live. I want to live this incredible, vibrant <laughs> life and then boom, keel over dead. But what we've normalized for humans because of our diet and our lifestyle is we mm. die we slowly die over the last 20, 30, 40 years of our life. And that's supposed to be normal because it is so normal anymore. And again, like I mentioned earlier, you start walking up the steps and things are creaking and you get out of bed and your feet are swollen and things hurt. And it takes a couple hours for joints to start moving or your neck or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, that's supposed to be you know, 50 years old. Now it's what it's supposed to be. It's not what it's supposed to be. Something's wrong. Hmm. Now, sometimes it's because you're in a car accident or something else for sure. But quite often what we don't realize is that if it's something's wrong and it's happening to so many of us, then there's something in our lifestyle, in our diets, in our in, in something that we're doing all the time that's just, you know, under the surface that we don't really recognize that would if, if I told you this is what it is, you'd be like, no way. You know what it is? It's things like spinach. And, we, you know, and it's crazy. It, it's it, I'm telling you that. There's a woman named Sally Norton. She's coming out with a book called Toxic Superfoods. It's coming out in December. She's an expert in plant oxalates. Uh, the entire book is about oxalates. It, uh, she, a five-minute conversation with her about four years ago changed my life. I mean, completely transformed my life. If you're eating a lot of spinach, a lot of nuts, a lot of Swiss chard, rhubarb, those sorts of things, it is worth just take five minutes, even if you don't believe me now, do yourself a favor. Just start Googling oxalates. Google Sally Norton and... Um, it may be one of the best things you could do for the next 20, 30 years of your life. You're so right. By the way, folks, oxalates, O-A-X-A-L-A-T-E-S, oxalates. It's amazing when I, yeah, when I read about that, I never even heard of that. And uh, I think it was, it was oxalates and then lectins was the other one I think I bumped into yeah. as well. Intense. By the way, folks, in his book, you'll see uh, chapter two deals with this. It seems like plants. Uh, chapter three talks about animals. Four is grains. Five is maize. Uh, six is dairy, seven is bugs, or is earth, earth, ash, and charcoal, and nine, everybody's favorite, sugar will be on there. So great stuff in this book that you can talk, you can read about and learn and get a different perspective. Like I said, I challenge a lot of the way I was thinking for many decades, and uh, I'm still stunned to this day, actually, how this is turning out. Um, that's, that's really incredible, because like we said, we, it goes against the grain of everything we've been taught about it. And speaking of that now, we head over to, to uh, wheat and gluten and that issue. But that's a problem, too. And it isn't necessarily gluten-free. That's the only problem, is it? No, not at all. And he, here's a, let, let me just say something very quickly to sort of lay the foundation for probably the rest of this conversation. We are stuck in this mindset of good foods and bad foods. And we have this idea like hmm. we should be eating foods we're designed to eat. And I'm convinced that's the exact wrong way to think about it because we're actually, and it's a very long evolutionary story to talk about it, but we are not designed, are, we are not biologically designed to eat almost all the foods that we consume. You know, there's a lot of anti-meat uh, things going on right now. Um, and they say, oh, we're not designed to eat meat because we don't have these huge canines and, you know, the length of the digestive tract and acids and this, all, all these sorts of things. But you know, we're really not designed to eat gluten. I mean, think about all the machinery, all the fossil fuels, all the labor, all the processing, all the things that go on to make a simple loaf of bread, from planting the seed to protecting it and harvesting and storing and grinding and baking and all of that just to take this, this and make it accessible to our bodies. So we're not designed to eat almost all the foods that we eat. And dude, I mean, if you're interested in it, pick up the book because we dive deeper into, uh, into that argument. But one of the things I mentioned earlier uh, is that I was searching my entire life to answer this question, what I should be eating. I was convinced you know, if, I, if I understood just somebody could tell me what I should eat, 
then if I ate that, then all of my troubles, all my aches and pains and my big belly and all those things, my acne, all those things would go away and I'd be fine. And the reality is, and, and I think a lot of us are asking that question, what should I eat? Somebody just tell me what I should eat. And there's you know, billions of dollar industries going on trying to you know, tell people what they should be eating. The problem is that that question is not answerable for humans. For a dog, it is, or for a cow, it is. You know, cows are designed to eat a specific food. Humans, because we've introduced technologies into our food system millions of years ago, we we started to literally out-eat our own digestive tracts. We were what all those Albert Einsteins of two of millions of years were doing is they were figuring out how to take foods, get foods that we can't access just with our fingers and our teeth and our, you know, the our muscles. Technology allowed us to access incredible resources from our environment and then transform those resources through technology into their safest and most nourishing forms possible. When I say technology, I'm not talking about nuclear power plants. I'm talking about things like fire and stone tools and grinding and drying and fermenting and sprouting, those sorts of things. And, and, and we did it. I mean, we literally created on the back of technology a diet that supported massive body and brain growth that actually created us as humans, as homo sapiens. So here we are in these bodies that have these massive nutritional requirements, but we're sort of stuck with this digestive tract that can't do it on its own. Like we've literally domesticated ourselves. We require these technologies to make foods as safe and nourishing as possible. So when we think, uh, talk about, uh, you know, talk about gluten here in a second, and if we get the dairy and those sorts of things, mm-hmm. right away, people's minds go, okay, should, are, are we designed to eat those foods? And, and should we eat them? And, and, and really just put that aside for a second. The question that I ask is how do we eat those foods? How do you in the safest and most uh, nourishing form possible eat gluten? How can we take dairy and make it as safe and nourishing as possible so that I can very effectively and safely, you know, have access to the nutrients in in that food? So um, back to gluten. Okay, great question. We have we have absolutely no business eating gluten. And one of the things I was on Paul, you mentioned Paul, I was on his podcast a few months ago, and he's very uh, hard line about breads and carbs in general, but breads. And he asked me about bread. My answer was this. Listen, and, and our family owns a sourdough bakery. So I'm sure I have a vested interest in all this. Anyhow, I said, look, Paul, I would never tell somebody who's who's made the decision not to eat bread because of health reasons um, to start eating bread. There's no reason to start eating bread. You don't need bread to be a healthy human. But if you're going to eat bread, there's an incredibly safe and nourishing way to do it. And then there's what most of us do. And the safest and most nourishing way to eat grains in general is to make sure they go through the processing that's required to make it safe and nourishing. And for, and for wheat, uh, sourdough bread is a completely different food. That sourdough process that, that uses both uh, wild yeast and a wild bacteria fermentation transform the gluten into something completely different. And here's a very quick, there's a lot of examples of, of what it does, but here's a very quick number kind of thing that people can wrap their brains around. So the glycemic index, right, from 100 to zero, 100 is pure glucose, your, body, your body's blood sugar response to, to different foods. Um, any bread, any just regular yeasted bread, whether it's like Petridge Farm, whole grain, you know, whatever, mucili bread, compared to Wonder Bread, it's always in the high range. It's always above 71. Um, whether it's white flour, whole wheat flour, doesn't matter. If you take those same exact ingredients and just put it through the sourdough process, it drops to below 55. So just the process, just the sourdough process alone takes it from a high glycemic range down to a low glycemic range. And then there's a lot of other things too, helping get rid of you know lectin issues and all those sorts of things. But sourdough bread is a completely different food than most of the bread that we have access to in the grocery store. That's awesome. You know, I've always been a fan of sourdough bread because of that. I remember the GI was pretty low on, on sourdough bread. Out of curiosity, I discovered this, uh, I mean, I don't have it regularly, but I did discover it for the first time with sheep herders bread. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Oh, okay. I, I can't describe it much more than that either, but I, I know <laughs> it was, we bumped into a place up North and, um, they had sandwiches and they made it with sheep herders bread. And it looked like it was a, a, a cousin of uh, the sourdough. It was phenomenal stuff. Either way, <laughs> before we get away from that, I uh, can't deprive everything, folks. Uh, again, folks, we're talking to uh, Dr. Bill Schindler. You can find more about him at eatlikeahuman.com or modernstoneagekitchen.com. And you make a great point about the cooking aspect of it. And I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. We were seeing, we're starting to see a lot of different 
diseases now with children that we've never seen before. Pre-diabetes early on that we haven't seen before, as you mentioned, kidney stones, things of that nature that we just haven't seen. There was an article that just came out today with a study that I think it kind of this university it was in. Um, they were just saying now that girls, young girls are starting to get hit puberty at age seven or eight, much younger than they've ever hit. And three things was associated with obesity, phthalates. And it just reminds me of how much of an impact our food has on our little children, which of course goes all the way through as we get older. But you mentioned dairy, and this is um, an interesting one for me because it ties with the kids. What's the deal with dairy, I guess? Well, here's the deal with dairy. Everything except for dairy, right? Uh, and so look at dairy <laughs> two seconds. Everything except for dairy, whether you're talking about grains or you know vegetables or have really tough vegetable material, whatever it is, the food that you're eating. Um, in my mind, if you, if you ask the right question to say, how should I best eat this? then I would say, well, turn to an animal that is perfectly designed. They're literally designed to consume that food as safely and effect effectively as possible. And then mimic what happens inside of their bodies, outside of our, you know, on our countertops before we put it into our mouths. That's the best way to do it. Um, and so if it's tough vegetable materials, we can replicate the fermentation process that happens in the rumen of a cow in a mason jar on our counter, right? That, that sort of thing. If it's, if it's uh, grains, um, granivorous birds like ducks and geese are perfectly designed to eat grains and they have um, uh, part of their digestive tract is called a crop. And in that crop, these grains sit and soak and ferment and sometimes even sprout before it goes down to the rest of our digestive tract. So we can replicate these things. Making sourdough bread is the same thing as what's happening literally inside of a duck or a goose when they eat grains, except for the baking, obviously. But with dairy, here's the cool thing. There is one food that I do believe humans are perfectly designed to consume, one food, and it's dairy. And it's only for a short time in our life, right? Humans are mammals, which means we are designed Everything about our body, our digestive tract, and, and, the, um, and the enzymes that we're producing are set up properly to consume raw dairy directly from our mothers in an incredibly safe and nourishing way. And then when we, just like other mammals, get weaned off of our mother's milk, we suppress or lose a lot of that ability to, um, to consume that dairy as safely and efficiently as possible. Now, then everybody says, oh, well, you're not, you, you know, I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. That means, uh, you know, 35 years old and lactose intolerant. That means I shouldn't be consuming dairy. No, you, you're not supposed to be consuming grains either. You're not designed to eat almost everything that you eat. The right answer is, and if you don't know when you eat dairy, fine. But if you want to get at a, a, a little bit of a deeper, more philosophical conversation about dairy and, and begin to think about ways you can safely and, 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 and nutritionally add dairy into your diets, um, Let's do this. Let's replicate what happened in our bodies when we were infants. We we're perfectly designed to do it. So this is what happens when we drink dairy from our mothers. Number one, the mother, the milk coming out of our mothers is raw. It is teeming with live bacteria and it is um, coming out at body temperature. And that's very important because body temperature is a temperature that the uh, beneficial bacteria that it's teeming with are designed to perfectly, you know, designed best to operate at. So this already fermenting milk goes into our bodies. And when we're infants and all we're doing is drinking, uh, drinking uh, a liquid, uh, liquids pass through our bodies too quickly to fully chemically and physically break down in our stomachs. And it doesn't sit in our small intestines long enough, even if it was broken down properly to all the nutrients would be absorbed through, through the intestinal walls properly. So we have to slow it down. Three different enzymes, well, we do a lot of different things, but three for this conversation, three enzymes that we produce when we're infants are really important. One is lipase, which breaks down the fat in the milk. One is lactase, which breaks down the sugar or lactose in the milk. And the other is chymosin or a chymosin-like enzyme, depending on what kind of mammal we are, that actually um, hits the proteins, denatures them some, and, um, and, and it does a bunch of things, but it actually coagulates the milk. It sets it up like a little bit more like jello sort of thing. It's, it, it partially solidifies it. And because it does that, it sits longer, it ferments longer, it chemically and physically breaks down, the nutrients get absorbed, and then that's exactly what happens. Well, that product inside of the stomach is actually cheese. 
Right. In fact, if a baby spits up on you and it smells like provolone and <laughs> it's, it, it smells like provolone and it looks like cottage cheese, it, it really is. It's exactly what it is. Uh, lipase is actually the, um, the enzyme that's uh, responsible for the provolone smelling uh, provoloneness of, of cheese. Anyhow, so here we are now, uh, after you stop drinking for your mothers and you get weaned, you suppress or lose that ability to produce those enzymes. Um, milk is, we're not dealing with milk in the same way any longer. And one of the big issues for many humans is, is the, they become lactose intolerant. It's not, I used to grow up and nobody in my family is lactose intolerant. So I always thought anybody that was lactose intolerant, that's what's kind of weird. That's, you know, the, the norm is to be able to consume milk as adults. Well, it's not. It's actually very, very weird that some humans are lactose tolerant. In fact, around the world right now, the average is about 60% of adult humans are lactose intolerant. 40% of us are lactose tolerant. Um, some populations are incredibly, uh, you know, on the far extremes, like a Native American population, for example, is almost 0% lactose tolerance. Almost, every, almost all um, Native Americans are lactose intolerant because they've never grew up with dairy in their diets. They, they, they weren't milking anything huh. that was never a big thing. But on the other hand, Europeans have a much higher Europeans and, and certain uh, populations in Africa have a very high lactose tolerance because they had a long association with dairy. It was a major part of their diets. And um, through independent genetic mutations, um, they developed lactose tolerance into adulthood. In other words, as they were older, even though they got weaned off their mothers, they still continued to produce that enzyme lactase, which breaks down the milk. In fact, Ireland is almost 100%. However you define, however the study defined Ireland, you know, true Irish is almost 100% lactose tolerance, which speaks to their long association. So that said, here we are having this conversation, you know, should we, you know, we're drinking ultra pasteurized skim milk that's been sitting in a fridge for three weeks and, and, and having issues with it and saying, well, I shouldn't be drinking this because I'm not designed to eat it. Well, you're not designed to consume that. I mean, ultra pasteurized skim milk sh shouldn't go in anybody in any form. But if mm. you want to say, hey, if I can replicate that process, I can take incredibly, um, you know, really good dairy, preferably raw dairy and ferment it. And if you want to coagulate and actually make cheese out of it, you're doing everything that happened inside of your body already and then consuming it as, as an adult. And that the cool thing about the fermentation of dairy is that the lactobacillus bacteria that's responsible for that conversion, that fermentation process from a dairy product to a fermented dairy product, whether it be kefir or yogurt or clabber or even cheese, real cheese, um, the lactobacillus bacteria actually eat the lactose. That's the food for the fermentation. So during that fermentation process, the, the lactose levels drop and continue to drop because it's the food. And if you take, say, yogurt, for example, um, most yogurt ferments for about eight to 12 hours. If you ferment it for 24 hours, there's no lactose left. Like, so if you are a lactose intolerant and, uh, you, and you were making your own yogurt and fermented it for 24 hours, you probably would have no issue at all because there's no lactose left at all. Same thing goes for very traditional, real cheeses, um, you know, and, and other fermented dairy products. That's incredibly phenomenal. <laughs> I'm just sitting here and all listening to you. <laughs> you just spilled that all out. And you read my mind. I was getting ready to ask you about geographical differences. You know, it's fascinating because I know the lactose intolerance. I've I had it for, for many, many years, but it's interesting when I found out uh, cheddar, they had very low levels of lactose. It doesn't do a yeah. damn thing to me. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it doesn't do anything. Yeah, absolutely. If it's in, mm. but here's, here's a, a tricky one though. Uh, mozzarella. Mm. Um, oh, forget that. One. Well, yes and no. It depends. Here, this is oh. why I'm a huge proponent of, of learning how the foods that you eat every day are made. It, it, mm. it, it's the best education you can get about your own food is in your own kitchen. Um, and what, one of the things I recommend highly, and I know it sounds really, really weird, but as busy as we are in today's world, if you really want to change your diet and you really want to connect with your food, then take the foods you eat every single day and learn how to make them completely from scratch and, mm. and do it once. I mean, I, it doesn't have to look good. It doesn't even have to taste good, but the act of learning how it's made can make you the most informed consumer when you actually go to a grocery store or go to a restaurant. And here is a wonderful example and, and, and dive, dive deep. Because most of the information you get, especially with your initial Google search, is going to be false or is going to be um, loaded and trying to make somebody else a whole bunch of money on the backs of your health. Mozzarella. When, uh, when my family and I were traveling around the world and we were doing the research for this book, 
I, uh, I usually ended up speaking at every, everywhere we were at some level. And no matter where we were in the world, like it didn't matter if it was Africa or it didn't matter. <laughs> the same two questions always came up. Should humans eat bread and should humans consume dairy? Th- those were the oh, two wow. questions. But on the back of the dairy question, when I started to talk about it uh, and answer it is, and I would answer it the very similar way that uh, I answered it for you. People raise your hand and say, listen, I get it. That makes sense. And I'm fine on really good yogurt. I'm fine on really good cheese, but pizza, like I don't get it. Like sometimes I eat pizza and I'm fine. And sometimes I eat pizza and I'm, I'm in the bathroom for half the day. Like, I don't understand why. And I said, I don't understand why either. It shouldn't be like mozzarella mm-hmm. requires a fermentation of about six to eight hours. Um, and because mozzarella is in a family of cheeses that it requires uh, the fermentation to get to a point to build up enough acidity to uh, be able to heat it up and stretch it. And you actually make the balls of mozzarella and the ball, you know, probo, all that. Um, so I said, I don't know why it should be okay, but I don't know. So when we came back, I was actually at a Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and um, I was looking in their cheese and I, I picked up a bowl of mozzarella and turned it around and looked at the ingredients. And I immediately understood exactly the answer to that question. And this is, this is, I think one of the great poster child um, um, things for, for learning about food and, and, and how you're getting fooled. Almost all the mozzarella you buy in the store, and I don't care if it's from a high-end cheese shop, I don't care if it's from Whole Foods, I don't care if it's from Trader Joe's, I don't care if it's from Acme. Almost anything labeled mozzarella is not real cheese. Um, the process of making mozzarella is this very quickly. You get the milk, you get it fermenting. If it's raw, it ferments on its own. If it's not, you have to add a culture, but you get it fermenting and you add that chymosin um, enzyme, the one that coagulates it in the cheese making world, we call it rennet and it creates curds and whey mm. and you cut the curds and do a couple things. And then you allow it to ferment. It starts off at a pH of about 6.8, which is just below neutral. So milk is like almost water as far as acidity goes. And as the lactobacillus bacteria eat the lactose, it creates lactic acid. So through the fermentation process, it's becoming more and more and more acidic. And about six to eight hours later, that pH has dropped to about 5.2 from almost seven down to 5.2. And when it, when it hits that, when it hits 5.2, you have to immediately heat it up and stretch it and make your mozzarella. And that's real cheese. That's how mozzarella is made. That's how provolone is made. That's how all the pasta filata cheeses are made. If you look up how to make mozzarella on the internet, nine out of 10 of the searches will tell you, you can make it in less than a half an hour. And they're going to tell you the recipe. And instead of allowing it to ferment for six to eight hours, you add citric acid or lactic acid or vinegar and drop the pH instantly. You can make a product that looks like mozzarella, but you might as well drink a glass of milk. There's no fermentation. None of the lactose has been consumed by the bacteria. So it literally is a solidified glass of milk that looks like mozzarella and tastes a little bit like it and melts like it. That, that's all that it is. So the, here's, the, here's the trick. Pick up that ball. And it, it, it used to be that you could at least go and say, okay, well, it comes from a really good store and it's packaged really nice. And it's a ball of mozzarella and it's sitting in liquid and it maybe has the pictures of the Italian flag on the front. It costs a lot of money, so it must be real. It's not. Pick it up, turn it over. If it says anything acidic on the back, citric acid, lactic acid, vinegar, acetic acid, whatever, put it back right on the shelf, especially if you're lactose intolerant. And ask, the if you're buying a pizza from somebody, ask them where the mozzarella comes from and ask them if it's, if it's real. We here, we, tonight's Friday, uh, we're making, we do pizza nights here. We spend an entire week making pizzas for one day, including we make all the cheese for it because it's, it's all real and, tra- and traditional cheese. And I would bet, uh, and actually we know for sure, we know people that are coming in that some of our customers have issues with lactose and have no issues with our cheese whatsoever. I wonder how that would be in Italy. That'd be an interesting thing. Have you guys explored that? It depends. We actually have gone to cheesemakers in Italy and they're doing it that way too. The citric acid um, way or the, it, the slow? Both. The, it, both, it, both. But it, it, it depends on how traditional they are. Uh, the nice, oh, here's the other crazy thing. At the same time that you're really upset about, you know, going to the really nice cheese and it's fake. The one place you can get mozzarella cheese where eight times out of 10, it is actually real cheese is the, uh, this, or is in the um, section where you get the string cheese. The kids' lunch, the string cheese, you know, the oh, little yeah. things you pull in their lunch, it almost always is actually real. Turn it over and look on the back. Most, not all of them, but most of them are actually real. Meanwhile, the thing that's 10 times more expensive at the deli section is fake. 
Man, that's unbelievable stuff. It really is mind-blowing stuff. I see you barely spend any time on this, but either way, <laughs> it's really amazing. And you make a great point about cooking. I started cooking about a year and a half ago. I couldn't cook a bowl of cereal years ago. And now I was able to cook a lot. And just I just tried everything just to, for the hell of it, just to see what it was like to try to make things. And you really do learn a lot <laughs> about yeah. food and how what interacts with what and how it affects your taste buds and your stomach. A quick couple of questions before I know we're starting to get towards the tail end here. We got to bring it back. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Folks, we only touched the tip of the iceberg. The book is called, again, Eat Like a Human, uh, definitely written by Dr. Bill Schindler, S-C-H-I-N-D-L-E-R. I highly recommend it. Um, this is another, I've asked a couple of people, but I haven't gotten a response because they don't know. These are super sharp guys just that didn't cover that area. They covered yeah. pesticides or whatnot. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with carrageenan at all. The seaweed. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because I, I saw it being used. I was trying some products, alternative products. I think one of was almond milk. And mm-hmm. it, I, for some reason, it bothered me. So I, I looked and looked at the, the product and I saw it had this carrageenan thing. <laughs> like, what the hell is that? So when I looked it up, I realized it caused stomach problems. And I was like, oh, well, that answers that. What do you do? You know anything about that area? I, I don't know much about it other than we've harvested it and used it. Uh, it, it. It makes it's a great thickener and stabilizer. In yeah. fact, they're in um in the British Isles, um, where it is predominant as as a seaweed. You there's all sorts of recipes and and very traditional puddings that are made. You, that's the actual thickener for it. Um, so I haven't had a pro. I don't beyond that. I, I I know what it looks like. I know how to harvest it. I know how to cook with it um, as an additive to food. I don't know much about it. It has never caused me any trouble, but I don't know enough to speak on it. You know, no worries. An educational place. I'll look at what Kirajin and study one day. I'll have to <laughs> get those guys out here um, or gals. Let me ask you this: since you're you're coming from the angle of how, which is wonderful, it's a, it's a greater way of approaching it. Um, I've asked this question a couple of times and I've gotten mixed responses, but they never came at it from this angle. In regards to, you talk about animals in chapter three, but in regards to grass-fed and corn-fed beef, some people are, you know, they're, they're totally devoted to their grass-fed. Other people say it doesn't matter at all. What does Dr. Schindler say? I think it makes a huge difference. Um, mm. But this is, this is the caveat. For so many people, access to, you know, consistent access to, from a financial perspective, you know, consistent access to, you know, whether it be grass-fed, beef or egg corn and olive fed pigs or whatever it is, depending on the animal, what their natural, what their real diet should be. Um, it does make, I do think it makes a huge difference, but I, mm. I don't like when, um, or what I get scared about is somebody that can't afford it all the time or can't afford to feed their family on it all the time. Then all of a sudden so puts her hands up and says, well, this is too much. I'm not doing any of it. You know? Uh, so diet plays a huge role in not only the nutritional value, but also the, the taste and the, the textural qualities and all the eating qualities of, of an animal, right? Of animal products. But at the same time, there's a lot of other things that make a huge difference. How was it cared for? What was living conditions? What was the, the killing conditions? How was it shipped? How was it, you know, how was it dealt with at the butcher? All of those things play a very, very, very large role. Um, one thing that I found that can help overcome uh, some of that economic pressure on, on trying to use is, and, and, and creates this incredible connection to your food for you and your family is to do as much butchering at home as possible. And this doesn't mean you're bringing a cow into the kitchen and throwing it on the counter. That's, that's not what I mean. Um, start with something like a chicken, you know, buying, you know, hundred percent organic, you know, gorgeous chicken breast has this price point over here, but buying an entire chicken, that's, um, you know, meeting all the ethical and, and nutritional standards that you're looking for um, is incredibly expensive, but it's three meals. <laughs> you get the chicken breast, then you get to do something else with the rest. And then you turn around, you had all the bones to make bone broth with, and you got the lid. Now, I, and I have little bags in my freezer. Um, every time I cook a chicken, I take the liver and I put it in the, in the bag and I keep adding to it. I put the heart over here. I might get enough livers. I make pate. And, you know, it, it ends up being much more economical and versatile to get that entire animal in. Plus, mm. I, you know, it, it's wonderful. Our kids are, are grown now or older and not fully grown, but they've seen animals in their kitchen all their lives and have helped butcher and they see skin and they see bones and they hear knives against bones. And, you know, because we're doing a lot of hunting, they see hair, they see all those things. 
And none of that's in most of our kitchens any longer. And the ability for our kids to connect this chicken breast that they're eating with the thing that's running around outside um, is very difficult when they don't have any of that at all. So from a nutritional perspective, but from a connection perspective, Mm. I think it's, and a financial perspective, it's a big deal. The other, uh, you know, and then bring in a pork shoulder, like literally go buy a pork shoulder from your butcher and bring it home. That's like six meals for a family. And if you bought it late, and then you still have those bones left over as well. And um, that helps. And the other part of it is too, if you're going to, um, if you have access to incredible animals, you know, really well-fed, well-raised, well-slaughtered, well-butchered animals, then get those organ meats. They're often the cheaper, they're more nourishing and they're cheaper than those, you know, those really high-end cuts of meat. And that's going to help stretch your dollar as well and provide you more nutrition. Great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah, I think people only, the children, well, I don't know what the children today, but most people recognize chickens, foghorn, leghorn, I think. They don't want to, you know, if you don't know who he is, look him up, folks. Um, it brought, brings a question to my mind about flash frozen types of meats. Um, sometimes when I order meats from a farm, it's grass fed and they send it to me, it's, it's flash frozen. Any insight on that? Yeah, there it's unfortunate because the a lot of, and we're even dealing with it here. I, the, the cool thing, and I, I want to say about seven things at the same time. That's why I'm pausing. The <laughs> the um, the cool thing about cooking at home and and bringing in whether it be raw milk or whole animals or whatever, you have the ability to do whatever you want. You can make the decisions. You control the processing, and you know you you have all that power. We now we've we created the modern Stone Age kitchen here. My wife and I, actually my entire family, to put into practice everything that's in the book, and what we are butting up against. It is almost impossible to create and sell real food in this country. I mean, it's almost impossible. The health departments and the codes are there to make sure people don't die. They're not there to nourish people. They're to make sure that, you know, bad food producers aren't killing people. Uh, And if you're really trying to nourish somebody using, you know, the things that we've talked about today, the things that are in the book, really trying to nourish somebody, it's almost impossible. We are fighting the fight and we're doing the best that we can. Um, But uh, it, one of the, one of the reasons I bring it up with with the question that you asked is that there was a lot of laws regarding after an animal is killed, how quickly it has to be cooled down. And you have to meet these markers in these certain time period, Mm. you know, in these certain time things. And it used to be, and it depends on a lot. It depends on the, the state that you're in. It depends on the animal. It depends on your, wow. um, your USDA inspector. It depends on a lot of different things. But we today like to celebrate uh, and advertise, oh, this thing went from you know, alive to a freezer in this short period of time. That's not necessarily something that we should be really proud of. There's a lot of enzymatic action that takes place. There's a lot of breakdown in very positive ways with meat that helps not only make nutrition accessible, but also fla- changes flavor and texture. Um, I mean, if you think about it, in, in if you're in Britain and you if you're in Europe in general and you were bird hunting, you'd kill the bird and you'd hang it and you'd hang it until the maggots came on it and then you brush the maggots off and then you know there's no bad things in it because the maggots have all you know come out and then you go ahead and eat the bird. You know, that's even I know a lot of hunters, old time hunters that still do that around here. Oh, wow. But today, you, you know, that's not a chicken. And I'm not saying that's necessarily what you should be doing with chickens, but it's the way that we're approaching these, uh, our meat today in, in, um, in the name of, of progress, in the name of food safety, and it is not necessarily always um, the best for not only nutrition, but also for, for flavor and, and satiation, all, all of those things that are a part of you know, the, the, um, the uh, act of eating. Yes, it's much more complicated. That's going to lead me to my final question. But before the final question, I have another question. <laughs> Again, folks, we're talking to Dr. Bill Schindler. Uh, eatlikeahuman.com. We can find more information. And the book is called Eat Like a Human. Um, and the, another website is modernstoneagekitchen.com. Highly recommend it. You can also find him at Dr. Bill Schindler on Instagram and over in TikTok, I believe, as well. He's over there now. You know, uh, this one, actually, I, when I read this in your book, I remember, oh, hey, somebody finally talks about this. Because <laughs> we've seen it a lot, and it's been taboo for so long, and there's a lot of groups that are against it. Um, doesn't mean much anymore. But charcoal. Mm. Since you're all about how to cook, is charcoal really that bad? I mean, are we done? <laughs> What's going on with this? 
this is a big question, so I'll do a, a shorter answer to it. But uh, <laughs> but no, but no, it's a just like everything else. There's so many different ways you, you could take the conversation. I threw that chapter in uh, Earth, Ash, and Charcoal because um, I wanted to make sure that everybody had the opportunity to stretch their minds a little bit further uh, than they might have before. You know, we could, a lot of the things I've said about plants has been said in different circles before and animals and dairy and all that, but, but, but the start and even bugs, bugs aren't even that taboo anymore. Right. I mean, there's a lot of these, but that is, are we really talking about earth, ash and charcoal? Yes, because they've been a part of our diets for at least 2 million years, especially the charcoal part and the earth, um, uh, has been in it longer and almost every animal on the planet eats earth um, for a couple of different very important reasons and we there are still some groups that do today human groups and our ancestors did for sure um, you know so just to you know lay that down as a hey let's start thinking about some of these other things and the charcoal is, is a big one it turns out um, we were when our family started our sourdough bread business one of the one of our best sellers were these charcoal sourdough crackers and everybody was buying them. And I live in an area where most people are meat and potatoes and you know, charcoal in my food's a, a weird thing. And uh, we had people climbing over themselves to get these crackers. They tasted good. They looked good. They were detoxifying. They were fantastic. And then we found out they were illegal. Charcoal is not on the FDA's what they call GRAS list, generally regarded as safe list. Um, and there was a huge blow up several years ago um, in I think San Francisco, a bunch of chefs, charcoal is becoming a big thing again in the culinary world. And a bunch of chefs got together and held this event called 50 Shades of Charcoal. And uh, the, every food that was served at this festival had charcoal in it at some level. Um, and people got in big trouble. And then not long on the, on the heels of that, uh, New York City actually made it illegal for chefs to use charcoal in their, in their cooking. Meanwhile, charcoal is known as the universal detoxifier. If you uh, overdose, if you have alcohol poisoning, if you have food poisoning, they, it, one of the first things they give you is charcoal. They use charcoals as filters in water to make sure you remove the bad stuff. And the reason charcoal is so amazing is because um, after it's been heated and the way that it's been heated, uh, the surface area is massive. This, uh, you know, there's all these caverns and all, and and it really does a great job of grabbing on the bad things and putting them in a place that your body can't can't access them. So they, it, but in addition to it being this universal detoxifier, it adds a really cool. I mean, when we think about food, and I know conversations about food almost always default to health, and that's an important part of it. We remember humans are cultural beings, we're emotional beings. And the act of being nourished through our food is more than just meeting our biological needs. We have to meet our cultural and emotional needs as well and our expectations of taste and, 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 and texture and aroma and all these things, the way food looks. Black food is cool. Like black ice cream is super cool looking. Black, black bread, <laughs> black crackers is super cool looking. It adds a texture and a color that's, you know, that, that's super cool as well. So anyway, we're not allowed to sell these any longer. Uh, I am in discussions with the FDA. We're actually trying to reverse it. In Europe, it is legal. Uh, you can buy charcoal crackers and charcoal food in Europe. Uh, black bread in Italy is actually a big thing. Um, they, they, oh, wow. Yeah, it's, using charcoal is not a weird thing in many parts of the world, but it unfortunately is for us. And I didn't throw that chapter in there to suggest that people need to eat charcoal every day. The reason I threw that chapter in there was because now that we're really getting diving deep into conversations about plants and animals and dairy and maize and gluten and all of this, where else, you know, where is that barrier? Where, if we're really trying to create the most nourishing, ethical and sustainable food system for the future, where do we stop having these conversations? How far, you know, there's things like earth, ash, and charcoal we need to at least consider. Um, things like pre-mastication, which is where parents, all parents used to do what other animals do when we're weaning our children off. You know, it's, it's normal now to go from, even if you're breastfeeding, breast to uh, the sterilized, nasty, jarred baby food as the next nutritional thing we're trying to feed our kids? No, almost every, almost every single um, group ever would chew their food. Every animal chews their food and gives it to their kids, chews their food and gives it to their kid. And it isn't just to make it soft and allow them not to choke on it. It's and they're through that act. They're not only, you know, they're, they're, they're touching their food, they're touching their children. There's that, you know, contact, but also they're taking enzymes and, and uh, microflora from their bodies 
and passing it on to their kids and helping establish that microbiome that's so incredibly important. So it's there, there's a lot of things beyond just should we drink milk and should we eat bread that we really have to start looking at uh, to reestablish our health the way it was before. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. I guess my last question before we, we wrap up, and I, I know we've only got a couple of minutes here. <clears throat> I'm going to have people who are going to be probably thinking, hey, I live in an apartment. <laughs> I live in a condo. Uh, how am I doing this stuff? Is it, does your book, do your websites provide those solutions for these individuals as well? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought it up like that. So we, um, we have a, a brick and mortar here. Uh, we mentioned the Eastern Shore, I'm sorry, the Modern Science Kitchen, but we also have a nonprofit called the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is, uh, that's our nonprofit arm that's focused on uh, research, education, and outreach. So we run a lot of classes here uh, in person. We do a lot of, uh, if you look on eatlikeahuman.com, we also have a lot of uh, live classes and pre-recorded classes as well, uh, covering all the things we're talking about here and we're putting more on and more uh, up all the time. The, the question you asked about the apartment, yes, 100%. If there is a food that's in your diet that you can't make in an apartment kitchen, then you should question whether or not it should be in your diet. And I don't mean you can't make because you don't know how yet. I mean, you can't make with the tools that are, I mean, think mm. of what, the powerful technologies for the past three and a half million years and the, and the things we did to our food were accomplished by our ancestors that have a lot less than you have in your apartment kitchen. And they did it with sticks and rocks and fire and clay pots. You have more than that in your apartment kitchen. If it takes somebody in a lab coat with a multi-million dollar machine and you know test tubes to make the food that you're eating, you probably shouldn't be eating it. That's a great point. Great stuff. Fascinating. Again, folks, you can learn more about it at eatlikeahuman.com and Modern Stage modern stage, modernstoneagekitchen.com, modernstoneagekitchen.com. And you can also find the book on Amazon, Eat Like a Human. I highly recommend it. Check it out also on Instagram. He's on there, Dr. Bill Schindler. And uh, it shows a lot of stuff on how to cook and do things with your food. That's really a fun site. You also got ES Food Lab, uh, Eastern Shore Food Lab, that talks a lot about different things, follow a nose to tail approach to eating. You probably heard that from one of the podcasts before. Great, great tip. Uh, regulate appetite and metabolism and physical activity. It's just a host of stuff. You can never run out of information if you go to those accounts. Dr. Schindler, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. <laughs> Truly my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. I could have been here all day just talking about that. We still only hit the tip of the iceberg. Amazing stuff. Thank you so much again. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hey, share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know we like it. And pick up that book and start eating like a human, would you? <laughs>